Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all today. Last night's storm, I was a little, a little nervous. Never been, never been through some of that, so that's all new. Um, all right, this morning, we're going to begin a new series. For the time being, we're going to take a break from the lectionary, and we're going to work through some of the core doctrines of our faith. So as we go through the foundational positions, I'll be referencing the Confession of Faith in a Mennonite Perspective from 1995. That is the foundational confession that we utilize here in an Ivana church, uh, Ivana being our, our network of evangelical Anabaptist churches. Uh, this is our expanded statement of faith um, compared to the one from Ivana if you look on their website, they reference the Confession of Faith in a Mennonite Perspective from 1995, uh, but then they also have a pretty condensed version. So while walking through, it basically there's 24 articles, if you will. Uh, think of like bylaws or anything of that sort. But as we watch, walk through each article, I'll seek to unpack the doctrine, sharing varying views uh, that are, have been acceptable within Christendom throughout history, and, um, yeah, within orthodoxy, if you will, and then what, where the church has kind of sorted out stuff and been like, hey, that's, that's outside of the realm of orthodoxy, and this is within. So, uh, as you read through it, and as I've read it through it before many times, um, there's some things that where you're like, oh, I didn't realize that would be in there, and then there's other things where you're like, oh, that's not in there. Interesting. So, there's some things where you're like, oh, I thought we'd maybe divide over that, and there's some things where you think, we don't divide over that. So, anyways, there's some interesting things as we talk through the core beliefs of our faith. So, as you, uh, in the coming weeks and months, you know, we'll take a couple at a time, and then we'll take a break, go back to the lectionary, back and forth, um, but we will be working through that. Now, at the end, I will allot some time for Q&R if you guys have any questions, because there is, some of this is a little dense and tricky at times, um, but I do think these are key for us to understand as followers of Jesus. And so, um, yeah, if you have any questions, I encourage you to write them down, and then uh, I will open that up at the end if we have any questions. Why are we doing this? Well, more and more, we're living in a post-truth world where truth and facts are relative, uh, where your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth where opinions and facts are mixed up, where perspectives and core doctrines can be swapped. Well, one of the first church planners and missionaries, uh, Paul wrote to him, uh, well, Paul was one of the first, but he wrote to another gentleman that he uh, apprenticed, that he raised up, Timothy, urging him as a minister of the gospel to protect the sound doctrine that he passed on to him. So if you read in 2 Timothy 3, 13 and 14, he writes, Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. So part of my role as pastor here, along with other elders in local churches, is to preserve, to steward, to guard sound doctrine. In Ivana, all pastors, we must sign a covenant that affirms this doctrine of our tribe that, that we deem as essential. So, you know, part of my interview and application process and even uh, signing to come and work here in my contract, uh, I had to affirm the essentials of this confession of faith. This is how we maintain unity in our beliefs. So in his letters to his church plants, along with some pastors and elders that he developed, Paul clarifies primary doctrines as well as, as well as tells churches uh, 
when they're dividing over matters that aren't essential. And so we're going to work through those um, because we're a church of varying perspectives, varying backgrounds, uh, but we do come to the table, especially around these core doctrines in the confession of faith. So, this morning we're going to ask the question, who is God? Uh, Merriam-Webster defines God as the being perfect in power, wisdom, and goodness, who is worshipped, as in Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and Hinduism, as creator and ruler of the universe. Now, the less common definition of God is a being or object that is worshipped as having more than natural attributes and powers, hence why... In the comics, they often refer to some superheroes as gods, like Shazam or Superman or Thor. They are these gods. Um, But there's many, and we don't really know how many in that mythology. Now, uh, Mahatma Gandhi said that God is, even though the whole world deny Him, He is. Truth stands even if there be no public support. It is self-sustained. The idea and belief in a God is still very much prevalent in our world and in the nation that we live in. According to Pew Research findings, in April 2018, 90% of Americans still believe in a higher power, 80% of which are some sort of God that they would refer to. Now, while the particulars of what or who this God is or how many there are and so forth may vary, the reality is most people still believe and submit to some sort of higher power. If you're familiar with the Beatles' John Lennon, he wrote, I believe in God, but not as one thing. Not as an old man in the sky. I believe that what people call God is something in all of us. I believe that what Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and all the rest said was right. It's just that the translations have gone wrong. Quite an interesting perspective. So we're going to hash into that. Now, so while the states at large would still believe in a God or gods of some sort, we're asking what or who God is. And it's kind of a weird question to ask what is God. Uh, But believe it or not, in church history, some of our confessions of faith have more asked the question, what is God, rather than who is God. Now in your bulletins, you're going to find Article 1, along with some commentary on the confession, uh, and it'll be up on the screen, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read the Article 1, not the commentary component, just to set the table for us as we walk into this question. So Article 1, God. We believe that God exists and is pleased with all who draw near by faith. We worship the one holy and loving God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally. We believe that God has created all things visible and invisible, has brought salvation and new life to humanity through Jesus Christ, and continues to sustain the church in all things until the end of the age. Beginning with Abraham and Sarah, God has called forth a people of faith to worship God alone, to witness to the divine purposes for human beings and all of creation, and to love their neighbors as themselves. We've been joined to this people through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and by confessing Him to be Savior and Lord as the Holy Spirit has moved us. We humbly recognize that God far surpasses human comprehension and understanding. We also gratefully acknowledge that God has spoken to humanity and related to us in many and various ways. We believe that God has spoken above all in the only Son, the Word, who has become flesh, and revealed the divine being and character. Lastly, God's awesome glory and enduring compassion are perfect in holy love. God's sovereign power and unending mercy are perfect in almighty love. God's knowledge of all things and care for creation are perfect in preserving love. And God's abounding grace and wrath against sinfulness are perfect in righteousness, or righteous love. God's readiness to forgive and power to transform are perfect in redemptive love. God's unlimited justice and continuing patience with humankind are perfect in suffering love. God's infinite freedom and constant self-giving are perfect in faithful love. To the one holy and ever-loving triune God be glory forever and ever. Okay. 
Very dense statement. One of, the, one of the most dense I've come across in church history in regards to just one point. Um, they're really, and, and it kind of spreads over to varying uh, articles. And so some of this will overlap because it is God. But for the sake of brevity this morning, I'm going to sp- spend the duration of our time focusing on the nature of God. Next week, we'll look more at the attributes or characteristics of God. But to preface, let's acknowledge how difficult this is to define God, to ask who is God or what is God. If we're honest, it really is impossible to completely know, fathom, define the God of the universe. Craig Keener, a New Testament scholar, wrote that God is the consistent, God is consistent with his nature and declared purposes in Scripture but he is not limited to our finite understanding of him or the ways we think he should work. So as we approach the subject of God, let's approach not as if we're equals. We're not sitting down at a dinner table with God being like, like dating him and being like, do I like this? I'm vetting him. No, no, no. We're not, we're not on the same level. God is infinite. We're finite. God is creator. We are creation. Let us be humble in our approach of the Almighty. So let's, let's, let's first look at the nature of God. So when we speak of God's nature, we are referring to the state of His being. The God of Christianity is what has come to be known as triune or trinity. Have we heard of this word, triune or trinity? Now, how many of us feel like we actually understand that doctrine? It's kind of weird. Wow, we're all really humble. Uh, (laughs) Or we're all just really like, what is this about? Me too. I didn't raise my hand either. Because God's a lot. God is other. He's incomprehensible to our finite minds. Triune meaning three in one. So that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all part of the Godhead. They are all equally God, but they are not each other. And we're going to unpack this. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity distinguishes the Christian God from all other gods. St. Augustine wrote, There is no subject where error is more dangerous, research more laborious, and discovery more fruitful than the oneness of the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Peterson wrote, It is commonly said that the Trinity is a mystery. And it certainly is. But it is not a mystery veiled in darkness in which we can only grope and guess. It is a mystery in which we are given to understand that we will never know all there is of God. It is not a mystery that keeps us in the dark, but a mystery in which we are taken by the hand and gradually led into the light. So, let's talk about the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. Because... um, If you do something called what's called historical theology, uh, a lot of our key theological positions today were not all just like Jesus resurrected and then the church was like, sweet, we've got this confession of faith. We we all agree on all these things. No, they kind of take time. Does that mean we made them up? No. But it does incorporate that God works within the brokenness of humanity for us to sort through in community as he reveals. Just like the people of the Old Testament didn't know the whole New Testament was coming. Even the disciples, right? So God had progressively been revealing himself to his people. And even in the early church, we were left with, um, I don't want to say holes, but some pieces to put together. So the word Trinity isn't specifically found in the library of Scripture. It's nowhere in the Bible. The word is not there. It's a word that we developed later on. But the doctrine of the Trinity is not necessarily even acknowledged in the first century church. Or even in the original doctrine of the first century church. Now, does that mean they didn't believe it all or understand God in His fullness? Not necessarily. Emil Brunner, he's a a 20th century theologian, a Swiss theologian, Uh, He wrote the ecclesiastical doctrine, the church doctrine of the Trinity. 
established by the dogma of the ancient church is not a biblical kerygma. Kerygma means core teaching of the early church. If we read any of the original writings of the New Testament, they're not in their core positions. They are not necessarily stating outright, hashing out the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, is it acknowledged in there? Yes, and that's where we'll get to. That's what the church kind of had to fit together. But it is a theological doctrine which defends the centrals, central faith of the Bible and the church. So Bruner's pointing out that while the doctrine wasn't there, hashed out, solidified, put together, the pieces were all there, the ingredients were all there, and they just had to name it. They had to fine-tune it and make sure we're in a, an agreement on it. And you may say, and for some church in the West, some church history, that 1 John 5, if you've ever read this passage, oh no, she just learned uh-oh, so everything's uh-oh. Um, <laughs> uh, 1 John 5 is where we see outright that the Trinity is in Scriptures. I'm going to put on the screen for you the King James Version, which a lot of people used for many centuries in recent years, wrote this in 1 John 5, 7, and 8. It says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Now looking at that verse, the Trinity seems fairly apparent. Um, unfortunately, this is a uh, the K King James Version was translated from a later uh, uh, manuscript, which we later learned had some additions that are not in the original manuscripts. So this portion was actually added. Let's look at the, a more modern uh, translation, which uses much earlier manuscripts. Can we look at the next verse? No one? Uh, there are three that testify. See how much they added in the King James Version. They added a lot of words to justify the doctrine of the Trinity. And then in verse 8, the Spirit and the water and the blood and these three agree. So while the additions do, uh, we do say they uh, describe a theological truth, we do believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. However, uh, the early transcribers of the, King, uh, of the manuscripts that the King James Version used to translate into English, which was only three very late manuscripts, very, very late, almost a millennia, I believe, um, they were mistr mistranscribed. We added things to it to try and, in the midst of the first couple centuries of the early church, there's a split. And eventually this church kind of divides over this doctrine of the Trinity. And so one of the transcripts, essentially that transcriber, added in this to justify the view of the doctrine of the Trinity. And so we as a church have acknowledged in recent centuries, as we've discovered much earlier manuscripts, and nearly all of them do not have that, and especially the earliest of ones, um, we have acknowledged that we messed up there. And I think we should acknowledge when humanity kind of tries to enter in and place itself in the Scriptures, when we ourselves insert flaws into God's words. We don't have to defend God in this manner, but this, whoever was transcribing here, sought to try and justify their opinion. Without this verse, we still believe the doctrine of the Trinity is there. But do you see how this is an issue? It kind of, um, it kind of diminished the value of the credibility of the King James Version, and that's where a lot of people moved past it, um, well, aside from new language, and we always re-update translations every couple decades as language evolves. But that in particular was a major issue there's interesting folks' tales as to why we added that. Uh, they're kind of funny. They told us in Bible college, but we, we really don't know why in particular this transcriber actually added this. But we do know it's not in there. It is not a part of the Scriptures. The doctrine was formed in what's called the patristic era of the early church, which is roughly the 4th century, so 300s. So we're talking a couple hundred years after Jesus resurrected and ascended, and the early church was going. We're talking all the disciples are gone. The doctrine had not been completely formulated. formulated. Now, while it is not explicitly 
taught in the, in the writings of the New Testament. The doctrine is, I believe, a correct summation with regards to the truth revealed in Scripture. So there's three things they tried to deal with. It was evident that there's one God. The Scriptures told us this. For example, 2 Samuel 7.22 reads, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is no one like you, and there is no God besides you. The second thing they're trying to deal with is Jesus' Lordship. John 1.1 reads, In the beginning was the Word. We believe that to be Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So somehow, there's one God, but Jesus is also with God, but also God. What is that about? Or one of Paul's letters in Titus, an earlier writing than John's writing. He writes, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul refers to Jesus as God. That's one of the earlier writings of the New Testament. So we're dealing with that. And then the third thing they're trying to deal with is the presence of the Holy Spirit. God's presence among, amongst the early church. Now, my, the sermon that I candidated here on was on Acts 5, uh, on Ananias and Sapphira. And um, if, you're un- if you remember this story, if you've read Acts 5... Uh, Ananias and Sapphira have, have lied to the Holy Spirit. They've withheld. They've said they've given. They, they've kind of boasted like, hey, we sold this property and we gave you all the proceeds. Like, look at us. Whoa, how cool. But really, they, they kind of kept some to the side. And no one knows this except Peter, through the Holy Spirit, is able to know. And in Acts 5, 3 and 4, Luke writes that Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? Here's the key. How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. So, it, translation is always tricky, but in the original writings, that reference of to God is the same verbiage that is applying to the Holy Spirit. Luke is referring to the Holy Spirit as God. So we've got, there's one God, but yet somehow Jesus is God and somehow the Holy Spirit is God also. They're trying to deal with this. And we're trying to deal with this. We're trying to understand this. But then one last thing, there's a distinctiveness from Jesus. Some people thought that the Spirit was Jesus, that it was like, I don't know, some, his body's going away, but I'm just going to like send out my essence to the world. No, but we read in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul writes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. Again, it's, it's really clear that they're two distinct beings. So the early church had to figure out what this meant. Who is God? What did we have to do? Prior to Jesus, the concept of God as Father was rare. It's kind of weird because we were very comfortable calling God Father, but in the Old Testament, there's actually only a few references. There are only a few instances there. However, Jesus is what really taught us to relate to one person of, God, of the Godhead, the Father, as, being, as Him being the Son. So He referred to Father God and Him being the Son God. Now this helped us solidify our understanding of two of the personas, Father and Son. We do want to say this. Note that the Scriptures don't only refer to God as masculine. Language is limited. Our understanding is limited. God is often referred to in both manners. There is Father God, but there are plenty of times where the writers of the Old Testament in particular refer to God in more of a feminine or motherly uh, characteristic. And for us to know, God, God's nature knows no sex. There is no biological sex to God. He has revealed himself in that manner to us limited finite, but God is not necessarily a man. And we'll get into what that means because, well, wait, Jesus was a man. We'll talk that through and how they've hashed that out. Um, But yeah, while we're familiar with the Scripture's teaching of God in male terms, it's also filled with many in the motherly side, whether it be in some of the prophetic writings or even some of the the, um, early writings of the Old Testament. But here's where it's key for us as they developed the doctrine of the Trinity. In Genesis 1... God creates humanity in His image. 
Now, with humanity being both male and female, this means that together, somehow, we represent the image of God. We image Him. We reflect Him as both. Not one sex or the other. Together, male and female, image Him. And so, we represent that fullness. Male alone does not represent God, but both male and female together do. Another key for us to understand is that all things about God can be applied to the Father, Son, and Spirit, but the reverse can't happen. This is a little tricky. So, for example, God is good. God is all-powerful. Same with Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father. They're all good. However, Jesus was a first-century Palestinian man. Is is God a first-century Palestinian man? No, Jesus, one of the members of the Godhead. So, there are God's divine attributes that overarchingly fall into each of the three members. However, the three members have their own distinct characteristics and roles within and of themselves. Now, this is where God's nature breaks our limited earthly categories. But instead of asking God, asking, is God male or female, perhaps we ought to ask, is humanity like God? Um, It might be a more helpful question. So for the first couple centuries, we began sorting out the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, There's a group called the Monarchians, that's where we get the term monarchy, Um, and they believed that divine power descended on the man Jesus. So while he carried the power of God, he wasn't God. He just kind of, it, it just took over him. It, it seems kind of cartoonish. But then when he died, the power of God went, went away, and then it went on to something else. That was an original view in the first couple centuries of the church. Uh, the church sorted that out. Another version of monarchianism is, uh, we call it modalism. This is deemed a heresy as well, where God does not exist in separate realities, but takes on different roles. So, if I'm God, if you will, I'm, I'm wearing one mask, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to be the Father today. Okay, no, they need the Son. I'm going to go put on the Son, and then I'm going to, oh, I'm going to be the Spirit. But they're all one person just kind of playing different roles, running around trying to handle eternity by juggling his masks. A famous book, a fiction Christian book that was really popular in the last couple decades, The Shack, portrayed God in that manner. And a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, I get God. No, it's very wrong. We deem this a heresy almost 2,000 years ago. That is not how God works. Another version turned into what's called Arianism. These are often named after people. How would you like to be like the person that like a heresy is named after you? How cool is that? No, that's just so sad. You get to you get before God and you're like, what's your name? Oh, you're that you're that Arian. Got it. You really messed up things for a while. (laughs) Caused some conflicts and wars. Arianism influenced a few church fathers, including pretty well-respected church fathers of ours, Origen, Hippolytus, Tertullian. His view influenced us to think that the Father was first, and then He somehow made Jesus and the Spirit. So the Father always was, and then the Spirit, and, and Jesus and the Spirit came. Now, Athanasius, he was a guy who had a lot of great, carried a lot of great influence, which eventually led to what's called the Council of Nicaea, AD 325. How many of you guys were like, I'm getting church history this morning at church? You're getting it. Church history is important. Uh, In AD 325, the Council of Nicaea affirmed the the divinity of Jesus. So at this point in the church, nearly three centuries, we finally get to the point where we affirm and decree Jesus is God. Does that mean we didn't believe that Jesus was God till that point? No. Often the creeds and confessions of the church are developed to combat misteaching. So, there's a little book called The Creeds and Confessions that's really cool, but it tells you the background as to what prompted the church to have to develop these defenses or fine-tune to make sure we draw a line in the sand and say, no, this is orthodoxy. That is outside of orthodoxy. But so that was the Council of Nicaea. Again, from there, though, Arian still had his influence when it came to the spirit. We call it Arian pneumatology. Pneuma is the spirit in Greek. Uh, the spirit was, first create, was the first created being from Jesus. So even still, they're like, okay, fine, we'll admit the Father 
and Jesus are God, but the Spirit, He's a created being, or they're a created being, whatever you want to call them, as they kind of sorted that through. Again, Athanasius, his teaching, pointed out that the three were equal in baptism passages in the New Testament. Think of the passage, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Baptize them in the, na- in the name, singular name, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's, they're written there on equal ground. Therefore, pointing out that they are equal. In most of the benedictions in the epistles, the doxologies, as well as even within early Christian literature, they are all written in a manner that they are equal. But it was also pointed out that, this, um, that if the Spirit was not God, then they were not in true community with one another. Now, it wasn't until the Second Ecumenical Council. Do we know the word ecumenical? It's okay if we don't. Ecumenical means all Jesus followers. So, um, for us today, ecumenical would mean the Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, and so on. That anyone who believes in and follows Jesus, we would all say those are within Christendom. We just have different dividing lines. But we would still say that Roman Catholics are Christians, just like our creeds say we are part of the Holy Catholic Church. Not the Roman Catholic Church, the universal Catholic Church. That's what Catholic means. And so the Ecumenical Council gathered all the churches of that time, leaders from all these different branches, the the Eastern Orthodox, the uh, church in the West that eventually turned into Roman Catholicism, and so on. They gathered in 381, and they affirmed that the Spirit was divine. But how was their oneness reconciled by the early church? So now they're at this point where all three are God, but what do we do? How are they one? Three doesn't equal one. Uh, I did a a short-term service trip uh, to London randomly in college, uh, but to like the really outskirts of London area, which is pretty impoverished and predominantly Middle Eastern. It's almost every, every sign is in Arabic, and uh, they're, they're ministering and, and planting to the Arab uh, immigrants in the London area. And one of the interesting things, every pushback to the Christian God is God can't be three in one. How, and, and then also, how can God be human? Uh, literally, the pushback I got many times was, how can God go to the bathroom? Bathroom is waste. How can God expel waste? That was a question I got a lot. Really challenged some philosophical understandings. You're like, oh, that's an interesting... But for them, it was Allah is incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. And the way I talked to them was, you say Allah is incomprehensible. You can't fathom Him, right? No. And you're saying three... It doesn't make sense that three equals one, right? No. Therefore, incomprehensible. Three equals one. It doesn't make sense. Why doesn't that make sense to you? It was really troubling. That's not how witnessing works. Um, But it was a fun experience. But all that to say, it was, again, another endeavor to work through this. Now, three theologians, as we wrap up the history lesson here, known as the Cappadocian Fathers, Basil, Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory of Nazianzus. Whoa developed a way to articulate God's nature. And this is where we get the Trinity. I'm going to put up this diagram up here for us. Now, the words they use, uh, they're, in Greek, they're called uh, eusia, O-U-S-I-A, which means essence. And then hypostasis, which means center of consciousness or independent reality. They wrote, the three independent realities shared the same will nature and essence, that is, one yuja, yet each has special properties or activities. So, in summary, God being the middle, so the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Spirit, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit. This is a common, uh, it's very tricky sometimes. Um, I remember doing a lot of youth ministry work uh, especially when we would like baptize students, some in their testimony would say, Jesus is my father. No, <laughs> let's talk that through. It's okay. It's not a big deal. Um, it, it is a big deal though, but you're not like separated from God because he said that. 
but it's key in understanding the God who we relate to and how he has revealed himself in human history. Now, there's a couple areas where people use illustrations that are kind of poor um, and flawed, and I think it's helpful for us to see how they are flawed. The main one we see, have we seen the water illustration, the H2O illustration of the Trinity? So God is like H2O. H2O can be solid, gas, or liquid. Now, what does that illustrate for us? It actually illustrates modalism, the heresy of modalism, because H2O, the same compound of H2O, cannot be at the same time ice, vapor, and liquid. They can only be one at a time. That's modalism. The point being, there is no good earthly illustration of how to comprehend our God. Some people get scared by that. Okay, some people get scared by that. Uh, But for me, I actually found comfort in knowing that I can't completely know God, that I can't completely grasp Him, that I can't put Him right here and identify every character trait and an attribute of Him. If anything, if I could do that, we have um, made God at our image, and He's not likely God. We can know shadows of Him. We can know strands of Him. We can know streams of Him. But if we were to know Him all at once, then what would the rest of our life be? Now, our life is a pursuit of God, a pursuit of following after Jesus in knowing and becoming like God and imaging Him in all the world. Now, that settled it, right? That settled it for us. We were like, sweet, the Trinity thing's done. Actually, no. It's still, throughout church history, became a problem. Um, The doctrine had been uh, devalued. Aquinas, Luther, they had their own gripes with it. Uh, One of our own, an Anabaptist, I think his name is Socinus, Socinus, S-O-C-I-N-U-S, and radical Anabaptists in the middle of the 16th century, they actually rejected the doctrine of the Trinity at uh, the Synod of Venice. Now, this is where there was deemed a heresy again, and they were kind of outcasted from uh, orthodoxy. And eventually, some Anabaptists returned, but this group of Anabaptists were um, basically, hey, you're on the other side of the line. Now, why does the doctrine of the Trinity matter for us? Why is it significant for us who seek to follow Jesus today? So, if our endeavor is both to know and be known by God, then knowing His nature and attributes matter. Knowing His nature and attributes matter. Now, in any relationship, any friendship, dating, marriage, familial relationship, anything of that sort, I don't think any of us would be comfortable or even feel related to or or in relationship with someone who we don't slowly start to begin to know. And man, we would feel like they don't really care about me if they don't ever want to know anything about me. Would we feel loved and would we be loving them if we never asked them a single thing about them? Perhaps that's why a lot of our high school friendships fade, because at that point we're all about ourselves and and we don't uh, really get to know one another that well. Or maybe it's because we change, but still. In particular, if you've ever been in marriage, I can't imagine if my wife and I said yes, and then the rest of our lives were just like never asking what's going on in your heart or mind. And especially as you grow and change and become more like Jesus. Man, what's going on as you wrestle through that? It's a life together. It is a relationship. It is a relating of love. So it is with our relationship with God. For the follower of Jesus, we believe that God has revealed himself as triune, eternally existent in unity. So as we get to know him, we realize that God exists in a diverse community of love. Now in 1 John 4, John actually says that God is love. Notice the verbiage. 
doesn't say that God is loving as if God is meeting some higher standard of what the definition of love is. No, he literally is the essence, the definition, the standard of love, the embodiment of it. We have a tiny grasp here now of what love is because we have a tiny grasp of the Almighty. And since humanity is made as and to image and reflect God to all of creation, we too are called to not live lives unknown and in isolation. Timothy Keller writes, if this world was made by a triune God, relationships of love are what life is really all about. Miroslav Volf, a New Testament scholar today, uh, he wrote, because the Christian God is not a lonely God, but rather a communion of three persons, faith leads human beings into the divine communion. One cannot, however, have self-enclosed communion with the triune God, a foursome, as it were, for the Christian God is not a private deity. Communion with this God is at once also communion with those others who have entrusted themselves in faith to the same God. Hence, one and the same act of faith places a person into a new relationship with both God and with all others who stand in communion with God, with all others who stand in communion with God. Stanley Grenz, uh, one of the guys I'm utilizing a lot in this series in his book, Theology for the Community of God, he wrote, when we know God, we have more than merely a body of truths about God. More importantly, we know the living and personal God. The task of knowing God, then, does not focus on the possession of a list of statements about God, but on the enjoyment of the fellowship with God. Understanding the Trinity, our confession of faith, any of these things, if it's just to know things, it's just pointless. It really is. Like if you, it, Men, when you were dating your wife, or, or gals, when you were dating your husband, I mean, geez, or if you were dating anyone, or in a friendship, man, it, if they're just asking things to like, kind of feel better about themselves that they asked you things, that's weird. No, like, that's not loving. That's using you to get something. To try and understand God in this manner is not an e a means to justify some ends. It is the ends. To, to know more about God is to know Him. To dive into His reality. That's why the other, the other point that I liked in knowing God, J.I. Packer wrote, what matters supremely, therefore, is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that He knows me. God knows me. Little me in 2022 in Strasburg, Ohio. He knows me. Why? Why me? Why would He want to know me? That's grace. That's love. That's a part of who He is. That he made us and didn't abandon us, but he made us and he personally relates with each of us who are in Jesus. So for me, I personally find the doctrine of the Trinity freeing. I know it's hard to comprehend, and again, we won't. We won't get it all. But for me, it breaks down the walls that shame has erected around my heart. Opening up the ability for me to know and be known by God, but also know and be known by others. This is a lot of the work that has come in personal counseling for me as I've sought biblical counseling. How the reality of God, the nature of God, the gospel of God breaks down the shame that comes from sin. So from the story of Adam and Eve to the, to the account of Peter denying Jesus towards the end of his life, we can see in the Scriptures the power that shame can have on our lives. It breaks down relationships. It breaks down civilizations. It breaks down all of creation. But for us who are in Jesus, who are being recreated and restored in God's image, we no longer have to let this shame have the power over us. Instead, the Spirit has loosened the chains of sin, death, and the enemy no longer 
do they hold power over us? We are now free to live restored to the community with God and with others. And this is where for us as corporate uh, and as the church at large is important too in understanding the doctrine of the Trinity. If God eternally exists in community, therefore you need to exist in community. We cannot follow Jesus alone. We can't be a Christian alone. And this is the danger, and somewhat I believe, of things like online church, that if that is your main avenue of church, uh, it's not church. It's TV. It's not community. Church is not even this. Church is, this is Sunday worship. Church is the community. Church is probably more what we're going to do tonight, in my theological framework, than what we're doing this morning. This is one gathering of worship service, but us embodying being the church is communing together, not letting walls of shame separate us, but no, gathering together, breaking bread, communing in light of and joy from the reality that we've tasted a glimpse of the triune God. And yes, there were times and there are times and there will be times where it's not realistic. I think of situations in life some of you shared with me that But yes, if that became your main vehicle of church, your main means of communing with others, yeah, I'd say I don't, I disagree. But unfortunately, it's easy to go that way. It's easy to hide. It's easier to go to bigger places or distance ourselves. But however, for a follower of Jesus, we can't follow him alone. If God is a community, we need community And nice little plug here. This is why I'm excited for groups to start. (laughs) Excited. We've been piloting one in our house and, and, you know, just the couple months of time together of being known and knowing others and ultimately knowing God through that process of being known and knowing others is a part, a major means of our formation. So I encourage you guys, make room, arrange your schedules, be ready for Thursday night's this summer. I encourage you to partake if you want to grow in your spiritual formation in this manner. If that doesn't work for you, let me know and love to find another avenue for you to be in community. Uh, Before we conclude this morning's sermon, I do want to open up. If anyone has any questions, that was a lot. Um, But if we have any questions, and I will try to respond, and if I don't know or don't even have a concept, I will get back to you. But do we have any questions Doctrine of the Trinity, nature of God. What was that great big word? Which one? The one that Ecumenical? Yeah, I can Ecumenical means is E C U M E N I C A L. Yeah, ecumenical or ec. Yeah, you got it there. Ecumenical or ecumenism is, is the nature of us. Yeah, being still. Um, the Protestant Reformation really was a, was a mark in history, and similar to the 4th century in church history where we started almost saying that the other side, the other branches are not followers of Jesus. There is some validity, but I would say that in all branches of Christendom, there are people, like Jesus warned, that think they're following Jesus but are not following Jesus. So that's always a warning. That's always something to be cautious with. Yes, the Roman Catholic Church got really corrupt and the Protestant Reformation happened. They were selling ways into, to receive uh, penance uh, of indulgences and so on, that whole thing. But I would still say they are within Christendom. We are under the same. We all submit to the gospel. We may have different views on how that works, and that's where we call ourselves Catholics versus Christians or Protestants and so on. Jay. Yeah, that's a whole thing. Where did we find that that copy, or where did that come from? Yeah. 
Yeah, the age of the spirit started, yeah. clarify, not to correct you, but I wouldn't call them individual deities. I would still call them all one deity. They're all one God, but they are individual personas within the Godhead. But yeah, just, yeah. Whereas like Mormonism will call them individual deities. That is a distinguishing factor. Mormonism believes in the same Godhead, but they believe they're all individual. Uh, They're not triune, right? They're not one. But um, to go backwards, the age of the, well, the age of the Spirit and why Jesus uh, had to not be here in order for the Spirit to come? That's your question? It's a great question. I don't know. It's something to ask God. Um, it does seem like on earth there was never a time where all three were like, we're all chilling together on earth. In the Old Testament, God met in certain spaces and places, right? He, the tabernacle being one place. He revealed himself on Mount Sinai. He re- revealed himself in a couple places. Then, in, you know, up until the, ancient, the early church, God's space was confound, confined to this one place that you had to make physical atonement for to enter in. Um, and then he, Jesus, is there, though. The God-man Jesus is here. Oh, so they're both on earth. But then Jesus has to leave because one greater than I is coming. The Spirit is coming. Which is an interesting statement for Jesus to say one greater than I is coming. Because we don't believe that this... They're all equal. But... Right. Well, the Spirit's in us, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brian. Oh, but your, your triune body, mind, soul. That's an interesting, like Christian psychology is doing a lot of work on that right now. That's interesting stuff. I don't have enough research on that, but I, that stuff's interesting. Because yeah, you're like, oh yeah, we have mind, body, soul. advice, good advice. Yeah, no, I mean, it's surprising if you look at the gospel accounts, and especially the book of Acts, how many people, like last week we talked about, all of a sudden, they are in the kingdom, they are Jesus followers, and you're like, wait, did they walk through the 24 articles of the Mennonite Confession of Faith? Like, hold on, did they run through it all? No, they didn't. So right doctrine isn't what saves us, uh, but it is important in our faith and in followership of Jesus as we fine-tune and understand God and the way of Jesus more perfectly. Um, And there are ways where it can definitely inhibit us, especially in some of the cores. I do think triune God, if you don't believe in triune God, that is outside of Christendom, outside of orthodoxy. But Dennis? Just a quick possible answer to... Rachel. Oh. Yeah, a lot of cults have arisen when some guy was alone in the desert and God revealed himself to himself. And he's like, hey, God showed himself to me. 
Sometimes, you know, there's some very, usually when something like that happens, the, the church process, the way the New Testament gives us with prophecy and things of that sort is to do it in the context of the local church, in particular in the presence of the elders. The elders pray through it, weigh through it, test the spirit, make sure it's in accordance with truth, and so on. But usually, yes, when they're alone, no, community is what, how we know God, yeah. Rachel. Yeah, in, uh, so we'll, we'll do God for a couple weeks here. Uh, scripture is the fourth article. That'll come towards the end of June. Talk through authority of Scripture, things of that sort, and what matters, what doesn't. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not discrediting just a couple things, but at every generation we continue to improve our understanding of uh, the early writings as we've uncovered some. Um, but no, I mean, King James was a tremendous achievement. Um, it's an interesting thing to think back that like the government issued this, uh, <laughs> uh, set up this uh, government-funded translation of the Bible uh, from the crown. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing to think of. Imagine if like President Trump or President Biden did that for us today. It's kind of weird to think about. But anyways, um, <laughs> but, um, but no, uh, it was a tremendous English uh, achievement for us. Wycliffe. I think was in there as well, but that for us to make it accessible to all people, especially in their own language, in Europe, um, tremendous achievement in church history. And I don't think it was to their fault that they, um, those translators in the 16th century did not know uh, that their manuscripts were not as accurate um, as some of the ones we've, we've uncovered thousands now. It's crazy to think that they translated a whole Bible with three, and we have thousands now. Um, so it's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, pretty cool. It's pretty cool because of the... What, what's also cool is there were so little errors, and Ra Rachel, I'll give you that too, that there were so little discrepancies from the manuscripts that we found almost a millennia earlier than the ones that were used for the King James. That's pretty crazy. That shows that our translation process, our transcribing, our, and our transcribing process is very... Um, very well, it, it's very thorough, so very reliable. So. Any other questions on the doctrine of the Trinity? You feel like you know God completely now? Me neither. Um, but it's okay, we gather together to grow in our faith and in fellowship of Jesus, knowing Him through the Scriptures. Uh, the other, um, you know, that the early church actually referred to God teach revealing himself through two books, the book of the scriptures and the book of nature. Uh, and so that is actually a foundational component that will come into play as well, that God spoke through two books for us. Um, but we know him through that and through our community with one another. And we know him most importantly through the way he communed, through the man Jesus Christ, who was both God and man. And so, um, yeah, enjoyed talking through this this morning. Uh, next week, we will dive into part two of Article One, more the attributes, the characteristics of God. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There, you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. 
Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. Well, we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed. We believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.